The stories that I'm going to tell you today are those of three different people. They grew up in different states and times, and they didn't know each other. But they all have one thing in common. They had so much going for them, and their lives were tragically cut short. But we're not talking about a tragic accident or a debilitating disease. No, they were murdered. And all of their cases are sadly still unsolved. Kanika Powell was born on January 31st of 1980. She graduated from Largo High School in Upper Marlboro, Maryland in 1998. Shortly thereafter, in the year 2000, Kanika enlisted in the United States military, which took her to South Korea. She was, by all accounts, an ambitious, intelligent, and career-focused person. In 2004, Kanika returned to the United States and eventually landed a job at the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. The nature of her work was somewhat classified, but from what can be gathered online from their website, the Applied Physics Laboratory, or the APL, conducts complex research, engineering, and analytical problems that present critical challenges to our nation. Due to the confidential nature of Kanika's job, she was often vague in speaking about it to her family and friends, whom she was close to. She signed her work emails with the title Special Security, and according to her mother, she was a security specialist, but she would not talk about her work. Her mother also said that Kanika's work would sometimes take her out of town for a few days at a time to pick up things for the lab, but she stated she could not reveal her destination. Sure, Kanika had some kind of job that dealt in the somewhat secretive field of homeland security, but there's no evidence to suggest that anything she was doing was dangerous or unusual. There are plenty of jobs that require some sort of security clearance. What's more is that Kanika had no criminal record, was not in a relationship, and by all accounts lived a normal life, which makes the circumstances of her ultimate demise all the more chilling. Kanika lived alone in an apartment in Prince George's County, which bordered the eastern portion of Washington, D.C. Despite Prince George's being the second most populated county in the state of Maryland, Kanika lived in a fairly quiet neighborhood. August 23, 2008 was a Saturday, and that evening, Kanika was home when she heard a knock on her front door. Being an intelligent woman who lived alone, and perhaps due to working in security, Kanika did not open the door, but instead glanced through the peephole. She saw a man she didn't recognize. The man claimed to be an FBI agent and knew her by her full name. Still cautious, Kanika didn't open the door and asked the man for a photo ID. He held up a badge to the door, which Kanika later would say looked fake. Kanika still refused to open the door and the man left. She called 911 and the police arrived in four minutes, but they found no sign of anyone suspicious in the area. There's more to this creepy encounter, and I'll share Kanika's words with you directly. Two days later on Monday, August 25th, Kanika sent the following email to her friends and family, sharing her experience and warning them to be cautious. It reads as follows, quote, 
just wanted to share with you the scariest thing that happened to me this weekend. Saturday evening around 7 p.m., a man was knocking at my door. As all of you know, I live alone. I asked who it was and he didn't answer. So once I got close to the door and looked out of the peephole, I saw a male figure that was not familiar to me at all. I asked who he was and all he stated was that he was from the FBI and that he was looking for Kanika Powell. It freaked me out completely because this man knew my name. He held a shield up but no picture ID and he never gave his name. He told me he was looking for me in regards to an investigation. I told him that I had no idea as to what he was talking about and that he would need to show me documentation as well as a warrant of some sort. So he left and I looked out my bedroom window and saw him walking. I also heard a voice tell him to walk in the opposite direction. The whole situation was scary and seemed so false. So because of this incident, not only did I get no sleep for the rest of the weekend, but I am now trying to get an alarm system installed in my apartment. I had one in my old apartment, but I just hadn't had it transferred over to my new one. As far as everything that happened with the guy, I did call the FBI and they told me that it was more than likely bogus because they never come to your door by themselves and they always leave a card of some sort so that you can contact them. I called the local police as well to give them a description just in case someone is out there trying to rape or harm single women. Pass this on, ladies. This is not a fake forward. This happened to me, Kanika. Who knows who these guys are and what they're doing and in what areas other than mine. Perhaps one of the most haunting things about Kanika's account of her story is that there was more than one person who she didn't know making an attempt to gain access to her apartment. The incident, understandably, left Kanika shaken. In addition to calling the police afterwards, Kanika also reported this incident to her apartment complex. Furthermore, she contacted the FBI who confirmed that they had, in fact, not sent anyone to her apartment. Kanika thought that maybe she was the target of some sort of scam. Still, the incident was unsettling, and she vented to a friend who later stated that she was pretty messed up about the whole thing. If only she could have put it behind her. But sadly, this would only be the beginning of this disturbing ordeal for Kanika. On August 27th, another man knocked on her door. This man was different from the first, but also addressed Kanika by her full name. He claimed to be a delivery man who had a package for her. Kanika, not seeing any evidence of a package and still shaken up by the previous encounter with the other man, refuses to open the door. The man leaves, saying he's going to get the package, but he doesn't return and does not leave a package or a note behind. The very next day, on August 28th, another knock came at 7.30 in the morning. Again, it was a supposed delivery man who said he had a package for Kanika. What had previously disturbed Kanika had now downright frightened her. She called the police, who again were unable to find any person in the area. And she also called her mother. She wanted to know who would be delivering packages so early in the morning. As she suspected, it was all bogus. Why are they bothering me, Ma? She lamented on the phone. 
Kanika Powell did everything right. She refused to open the door for three strange men, reported each incident to both the police and her apartment complex. She even called the FBI to verify the validity of her visitor, and she shared the experience with her loved ones in hoping of saving someone from being scammed, or worse. But an incredibly sad reality would soon rear its ugly head, and the worst thing possible would happen to Kanika, even though she did everything to prevent it. The early morning knock at the door happened on August 28th, as you recall, and Kanika was headed out of town for a work trip the next day, and she had some errands to run to get ready. She didn't want to wait till it got dark to handle them, as she thought she'd be safer going out during the daylight hours. Just before noon, Kanika returned to her apartment complex, but someone was waiting for her in the hallway that led to her apartment. The unknown person would fire several shots at Kanika with a handgun. The police received a call at 11.50 a.m., and Kanika was rushed to the hospital, unconscious but still alive. Sadly, Kanika would succumb to her injuries the next day on August 29th. Kanika Powell was dead. One could say that Kanika was the target of a failed home invasion. It would explain the several attempts by someone to gain access to her apartment. She was, after all, a single woman who lived alone. But lying next to Kanika's body in the hallway were both her keys and wallet. What kind of burglar shoots a woman and doesn't bother taking her wallet if it's valuables that he or she's after? No, it was clear someone wanted Kanika dead. But why on earth she, a promising young woman with no criminal history, no gang affiliation, or any known jilted lovers was somebody's target, is anyone's guess. Three months later, on November 12, 2008, and 25 miles from where Kanika was murdered, a 31-year-old man by the name of Sean Green sat at a red light after returning from the gym. Sean worked as an IT professional for a national security contractor. As Sean waited for the light to turn green, a masked man walked up to his car, firing nine shots at Sean before fleeing the scene. Sean was killed. Both Kanika and Sean were murdered in the same general area three months apart. Both worked jobs involving national security. Both were African-American, young, family-oriented. Police have said they don't believe that Kanika's work is related to her murder. Still, 14 long years, and there's still no clues as to who killed Kanika or Sean, for that matter. Was it the same person? Was it a strange coincidence? Whatever the case, may the families of Kanika Powell and Sean Green both find healing, and may they both rest in peace. Our next story takes us from the East Coast to the Midwest and back to the year 1990. 19-year-old Chad Marr was an attractive man with bright blonde hair, and like Kanika Powell, he seemed to have everything going for him. In 1990, Chad lived with his parents, John and Dolly, in Madison, Wisconsin. 
He had just graduated high school the year prior and was working at a bicycle shop called the Village Peddler in an effort to save money to attend college. It was there where he was headed on May 19th, a Saturday. At around 12.20 p.m., Chad returned to the home where he shared with his parents, John and Dolly, for lunch. He grabbed some sandwiches and told his parents he was going to head back to the shop as it was busy. Before he rushed out, and like you might expect any teenager to do, Chad asked his father if he could borrow $20 for gas. John handed over the money, and with that, his son Chad drove away in his dad's 1968 Mustang. Their interaction was completely unremarkable, as routine as the sunrise and sunset, and Chad seemed completely normal. And John and Dolly had no way of knowing that this would be the last time they would see their son alive. It didn't take long for an alarm to be erased with John and Dolly Marrer. About an hour after Chad drove off, presumably back to work, the pair traveled together to a hardware store that happened to be located a few doors down from the bicycle shop. As they went about their business, they noticed that the Mustang was not in the parking lot, which struck them as odd. Chad had claimed to be heading back to work, so where was he? His parents paid a visit to the shop. It was very busy, as Chad had said, and no one seemed to know where Chad was. Chad never made it home that night, and his parents were at a loss of where he could have gone. They contacted his friends. It turns out the time that they last saw Chad was at a party on Friday night. No luck there. Two days later, on Monday, May 21st, John and Dolly received a call that would puzzle investigators and devastate a family. It was, oddly, the Chicago police. A maintenance worker opened a garage in a new housing complex on the south side of Chicago, Wentworth Gardens to be exact. Upon doing so, he discovered the Mustang convertible belonging to John that Chad had been known to drive. Inside the car, Chad's decomposing body. Yes, the police were calling to tell the Mars that their son was found dead, 150 miles from home, and even more unbelievable, that he had killed himself. Chad had been found slumped over the driver's seat, keys in the ignition. The car's battery was dead, the fuel tank depleted. Because of these circumstances, his cause of death was ruled a suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. None of it made any sense to John and Dolly. And when Chad's body arrived back in Madison, his father was able to view it before his funeral, a moment that no parent should have to experience, but one that was made all the more horrible when signs of a brutal attack were visible on Chad's body. This was despite the Chicago police claiming that there was no evidence of foul play. He was covered in bruises and other marks, His knuckles were said to be skinned to the bone. The shirt he had been wearing was stained with blood, and there were skid marks found on his clothing, suggesting that he had perhaps been dragged along a surface such as a street. In reviewing the photos of Chad's body in his car in the garage, another strange clue became noticeable to Chad's parents. There was a jacket that they insisted not belong to Chad lying on the front passenger's side seat. 
Chad's mom, Dolly, was adamant that Chad didn't own a jacket like that. And he didn't even have a jacket with him when he left the house on that fateful Saturday. Results of Chad's autopsy would only solidify the Mars' belief that Chad did not kill himself. The levels of carbon monoxide found in his blood were far greater than they should have been, suggesting that Chad was already unconscious when he was inhaling the toxic fumes. Something terrible had clearly befallen Chad Marr, and he either drove three hours to Chicago of his own accord, or he was forced to do so by persons unknown. The area where Chad was found was not particularly a safe one. In fact, in the year 1990, when Chad died, the area saw over 166 homicides. Police had started to receive tips and rumors and started to circulate that perhaps Chad was involved in transporting drugs. Chad was known to smoke marijuana, and in fact, his parents worried that he was smoking too much. It's also alleged that he had tried the psychedelic drug LSD in the past. Besides the significant levels of carbon monoxide in Chad's system, however, there were no traces of drugs or alcohol found in his bloodstream. Five months after Chad's tragic death, a Crime Stoppers tip line received an anonymous call from a person who claims that Chad was partaking in a drug deal with people that lived in his apartment complex in Madison. Those very people had recently moved from the south side of Chicago. One was subsequently arrested for a different crime. The anonymous tipster statement may have merit, as one of Chad's friends claimed that Chad had told her he'd previously transported drugs from Madison to Milwaukee on two separate occasions. The same friend alleges that Chad transported marijuana across Madison on another occasion. Chad was saving up to attend college in Colorado, and authorities now believe that Chad accepted an offer from someone to transport drugs from Madison to Chicago a journey that would ultimately end up in his brutal murder. At the time of his disappearance and death in May of 1990, Chad had only been working at the bicycle shop for two days. What caused him to abandon his job in the middle of a workday? Some believe he was enticed by an offer of a significant amount of money to complete the transport of narcotics to the Chicago area one that would be worth his while more so than potentially getting fired from the bicycle shop. Others believe he was forced to carry out a deal. The owner of the bike shop told a local newspaper that Chad had seemed afraid of something leading up to his disappearance. The rumors have done little to ease the minds of John and Dolly Marr, as there has never been any concrete evidence to prove that Chad was involved in the transportation of drugs. And for 32 years, they have sadly been left with more questions than answers. Elizabeth Marie Newell was born on June 26, 1989 in Elk Grove Village, Illinois to parents Robert and Rosemary Newell. At the time of her birth, she joined an older brother, Robert Jr. She grew up in eastern Texas and graduated from Klein Collins High School in 2008. Besides being a kind and loving person who cared deeply for her family and friends, 
Liz, as she was known by, was also a self-proclaimed geek. She was a devoted fan of science fiction, and she loved all things related to Star Wars and Harry Potter. Liz was also a gifted costume designer, and she'd often make costumes for her attendance at various conventions. It was one of those conventions, Comic-Con to be exact, a popular and well-known comic book convention held annually, where Liz is said to have met her future husband, Sergio Barraza. Sergio shared Liz's passion for Star Wars and cosplay. The pair married in 2014, and together they joined a group called the 501st Legion, an international collection of Star Wars fans who create costumes and dress up. But the group did more than just dress up. The Legion was also heavily involved in charity work, and Liz was no exception. She was in fact an event coordinator for her community legion and spent a lot of her time volunteering at local children's hospitals, dressing up to put a smile on the faces of sick kids. In 2017, Liz and Sergio settled and bought a house in the fairly small town of Tomball, Texas, a northwestern suburb of Houston. In early 2019, the by-all-accounts happy couple was quickly approaching their fifth wedding anniversary, and they wanted to commemorate the event by treating themselves to a visit to Orlando, Florida, home to Disney World, Universal Studios, and Harry Potter World. They booked the trip for January 27th and started packing their bags, Liz being incredibly excited to indulge in her favorite hobby. Heartbreakingly, Liz's life would be cut short before she ever got the chance. While Universal Studios has proved to be a land of wonder and exciting adventures for people of all ages, one negative aspect of visiting theme parks in general is the undeniable expense. In an effort to gain a little extra income for their impending trip, Liz decided to hold a garage sale a couple days before her and Sergio were due to leave. This was something Liz did before, quite often in fact. She had previously had three successful rummage sales in the time that she had lived in Tomball. Unlike the others, however, this one was a bit more last minute as Liz decided to have a rummage sale for the very next day. The morning of Friday, January 25th, 2019 was an early one for Liz and Sergio. At 6.08 a.m., Liz, having the day off, went to Starbucks. She was home by 6.16. She would spend the next 30 minutes or so setting up the rummage sale in the yard with Sergio. Just before 6.50 a.m., it was time for Sergio to leave for work. He kissed his wife goodbye, told her he loved her, and with that, he was off to work. Over the course of the next three minutes, the life of Liz would come to an abrupt end. And terrifyingly, it would all be captured on ring doorbell footage. At 6.51 a.m., a black Nissan Frontier is spotted driving towards the Barraza home. Shortly thereafter, a figure is seen exiting the vehicle and approaching Liz as she continues to set up for the rummage sale. It's just starting to get light outside, and the neighborhood is still quiet. Good morning, Liz can be heard cheerfully greeting the unknown person. 
The person is clothed in either a, a long coat or a bathrobe, wearing some sort of costume with long hair, which could be a wig. Chillingly, for eight seconds, Liz and the person exchange some words. The conversation is audible on the recording, but what the two are conversing about is anyone's guess. The disguised person then pulls out a gun, shooting Liz at point-blank range four times before sprinting back to his or her vehicle and peeling away. Having heard the gunshots, a neighbor of the Barrazas called 911. With tears in her eyes, she told the local news that she had heard three quick gunshots right in a row, followed by a fourth. Eerily, moments after driving away, the assailant circles back around and drives past the Barraza home again. At 7.21 a.m., a helicopter life flight arrives on the scene and flies Liz to a nearby hospital, the hospital that Liz had volunteered so much of her time at, dressing up in costumes for kids, and she was now there fighting for her life. Sergio is alerted at work that his wife has been shot and arrives home to meet the police shortly thereafter. He's questioned extensively. The next day on January 26th, 1.40 p.m., sadly, Elizabeth Barraza passes away. It was a life of giving that was cut short, as Liz was only 29 years old. Still, Liz's generosity extended beyond her death, as she was an organ donor and was able to save the lives of four people. Heartbroken, now instead of taking a trip to Orlando, one that he and his wife had been so excited for, Sergio was instead holding a vigil for his wife. Liz's loved ones pointed lightsabers to the sky and told stories of what an amazing and charitable person that she was. But somehow, for some unknown reason, someone wanted Liz Barraza dead. After reviewing more footage from ring doorbells and other surveillance cameras in the area, authorities would find a clue that would turn their blood to ice, a shocking prelude to the brutal crime. At 2 o'clock in the morning, just four hours before Liz was setting up for the rummage sale, the same black Nissan Frontier is seen driving through Liz's neighborhood. The person seemed to be scoping out the Barraza home. Further, making the entire incident all the more perplexing, none of the items that Liz was planning to sell that day at her sale were taken. Some of them were high value. The cash box Liz had ready to break down large bills and give change out for was untouched. Robbery was ruled out as a motive. No, this was a cold-blooded and brazen attack that someone had methodically planned. It has been over three years since Liz was murdered on that January morning, and to this day, no one has been able to identify her killer or figure out why she was a target at all. There was no known trouble in her marriage, no apparent signs she had angered anyone, no criminal record, and no involvement in anything nefarious. So what drove someone to murder Liz that morning? What did he or she say to Liz in the eight seconds before they pulled out a gun and shot her? Was this a planned hit, 
explaining the vehicle driving near the Barraza home in the early morning hours before the attack? Or was it simply someone who was jealous of Liz's successes and general likability? Most importantly, why hasn't this person been identified, despite their vehicle and the murder itself being caught on camera? There is a $50,000 reward that leads to the arrest of the person responsible for the murder of Liz Barraza. The funds were raised in part by Peter Mayhew, best known for playing Chewbacca in the Star Wars film series. Hopefully, new tips or clues emerge in the future, and for the family of Liz Barraza, I hope that happens sooner rather than later. If you have any information about the murder of Kanika Powell, gunned down in the hallway of her apartment complex in Prince George's County, Maryland, you are asked to call or text Crime Watch Daily's toll-free tip line at 844-800-CRIME. That's 844-800-CRIME. If you have information about the death of Chad Marr, who was found dead in an abandoned garage in Chicago, over 150 miles from his home in Madison, Wisconsin, you can submit a tip to the Chicago Police at chicagopolice.org. If you would like to report a tip related to the murder of Liz Barraza, you can call the Crime Stoppers of Houston tip line at 713-222-TIPS. That's 713-222-TIPS. All calls are completely anonymous. Thank you for listening to episode 29 of 1 Minute and 43 Seconds, a true Unsolved Mysteries podcast. To view sources or suggest a case for me to cover, please visit 143mysteries.com. To view photos associated with cases, follow the podcast on Instagram at 143mysteries. And finally, you can also catch us on Twitter at 143podcast. Until next time, be safe. One minute and 43 seconds is dedicated to my number one fan. Thanks, Dad. I love you and I miss you. This podcast has been approved by Skipper the Cat. Right, Skippy?